Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We're starting a new study series this morning for the next seven weeks, Lord willing. And I believe the Holy Spirit has led us to these two chapters and led us to his words to the seven churches that are listed here because they provide an important assessment for us of our spiritual condition, uh, both as individuals, because we always need to be uh, determining and assessing where we are spiritually with the Lord, but also uh, for us as a church. We stand for Jesus Christ as a church, we honor and serve Him, and we spread His gospel. So how are we doing on that? How are we representing Him? Are we doing a good job of that? Now, all of us have different backgrounds, all of us have um, different levels of spiritual maturity and spiritual contentment, so there's really not a one-size-fits-all method in Christianity. There's, there's no perfect way for a church to sing and worship, there's no perfect way for a pastor to teach, uh, there's no perfect way for the church to disciple people, there's, there's no one-size-fits-all, it takes on many forms. However, if we love the Lord... And if we are um, under the control of the Holy Spirit in our lives, our hearts will be unashamed. And our hearts will be full of joy. And we'll be living holy lives and living uh, by Christ's example. And there will be a, a consecration um, and, a, and a consistency that will uh, unmistakably mark our lives. People will notice it. It will be obvious that they won't have to question uh, who we live for and who we um, serve. Same thing applies to churches, not only to individuals, because individuals make up the church. So how does a church present itself? And I'm not talking marketing strategies or, or, uh, or ways of really trying to reach the community. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking in a natural state, spiritually, how does a church represent itself? I've been in, in some churches and fewer than most where God's presence is so clear and so manifest that that I literally started to weep and, and feel great joy and was fed and encouraged and prayed for. I love churches like that. I've also been in churches where pride and personal agendas are very, very evident and where the spirit is being hindered by materialism and by spiritual compromise and by worldliness and by a self-centered approach to ministry. So how does church, how does Harbor Rock represent this community? What's our name? What's our reputation? What do people think when they think of this church? And as members of this church and participants in this church, what then do they interpret about us? Now in these texts, we're going to see a, 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 a number of examples that kind of run the gamut. And I pray that this will help us to really honestly assess um, where uh, we're doing, how we're doing in our lives, how are we growing, what's our level of maturity, and also to assess how we're doing as a church. We're in a very important time in the life of our church. And if we are walking with the Lord, if we're standing faithfully for Him, if we're living out the gospel and, and serving Him in a way that's pleasing to Him, His plans for us are beyond what we will imagine. Now, many of us have felt that, many of us have talked about that for a while, and we've sensed that we're kind of on the cusp of that, and it's very exciting. I believe God has, in the last three or four months, really been confronting spiritual immaturity, 
and breaking down some walls and some inhibitions and, and healing some marriages and some families that were struggling and, and strengthening us and stirring our hearts. And now we have the potential to, to have greater permanence as a church with a building. We're seeing new families come into the congregation. And, and God's giving us fresh opportunities to minister to this community. And there are many more ahead. So we need to be a people. And we need to be a church that God can use for his glory. And we'll know that's taking place. We'll know that's true when conviction is, is more important than being sensitive or being annoyed. When we're unashamed in our praise and our worship and our love for the Lord, rather than being restrained. When we're full of faith and power, rather than full of faith and weakness. When prayer becomes more important than, than being entertained. When people are getting saved and, and restored instead of falling back and, and falling away from the Lord. That, that, that will be the mark that we're becoming and are the church that God wants us to be. Now, that being said... I've been so encouraged, especially over the last couple months. I've been so full of joy at the unity that our church is experiencing, the growth that, is, that has characterized us. We've discussed about it in, in leadership meetings, and we're so glad that the Spirit is moving, it seems like, in a, in a very fresh way. That people are, are becoming more free about showing their love for the Lord. And I think the atmosphere of our worship service and the atmosphere of our interaction when we have a harbor cafe or when we're in studies together it, it's just really I believe that there's a there's a greater passion and a greater freedom of expressing our love for the Lord and that's how it should be not not kind of um, ritualistic and stuffy but also not over the top in terms of emotions and showiness and becoming something that we're not during the week there should be a natural expression for all of us of our love and praise for the Lord. And I believe God's doing that. And I believe God's going to continue to do that. So we want to make sure that our hearts are right with God. We want to make sure that we're a church that is pleasing to God. So we're going to look at these seven churches and assess ourselves individually and as a church. But let's start here in Revelation chapter 2. This is a text that we studied in depth a few years back at the old MC. Remember that? Some of you went through the precepts study in Revelation. Boy, that was a good course. But if you didn't, or if that's too long ago, and like me, you're forgetting things more than you used to, let's just have a little refresher. Let's get some background for this passage, okay? I don't want to bore you with history, but the history is important. So, Revelation is a book of prophecy about the end times. It was given to the Apostle John when he was in exile on the Isle of Patmos. Chronologically, this book falls exactly where it is in the Bible. It falls at the end. It's the last book that was written about 20 to 25 years after the last letter of the New Testament. And John specifically, you can see in chapter 1, starting in verse 4, John specifically addressed the book to seven churches that were in important cities in Asia Minor. Now, these cities, if you look at a map, and you can Google these. I wish I had a slide for you this morning. They were all kind of sequentially in a circle or kind of an oval along a mail route. None of them was farther than about 200 miles from the other, and this is in what is now western Turkey. So if you can picture your map, you've got the Mediterranean right at the north central part of the Mediterranean is the country of Turkey. And Turkey on the western side, 
toward the United States had these seven cities and these seven churches. If you want perspective on kind of what this is like, it's like John writing to our church here in Racine and then also writing to churches in Milwaukee and Madison and Lake Forest and Chicago and in Schaumburg and Oak Brook. Okay, so kind of picture that on a big circle on the map that, that John was writing addressing these churches. They were seven literal churches, and they represented varying degrees, varying levels of spiritual health, and varying levels of spiritual influence. And starting in chapter 2, which we're going to read verse 1 in a moment, the Lord is giving a direct message to each one. Now, that being said, the message is not exclusive just to that congregation or just to that time period. They're applicable to us today, which is why we're studying it, um, so we can learn from what he's telling each church. But historians also uh, believe that this represents uh, the eras of church history from the late first century A.D., which is when this book was written, all the way up to the present time. So as we'll see as we go through, five of these churches represent eras in the past, and two of them represent current a structure of the church. And the two that we're going to see at the end, Philadelphia and Laodicea, represent very divergent pictures of the church. One is strong for the Lord, one's living for the Lord, and the other one is completely uh, dull and apostate and kind of away from the Lord. And as we get to the end, as we go through, that's going to, I pray, stir us to real examination and action of what type of church and what type of believer we are. Now, there's a lot we can learn here from each church and from each area, which is why at the end of each church, the Spirit essentially says, if you've got ears, listen up. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, if you can understand this, if you can read this, this needs to be something you take in and appreciate and learn from. Someone once said that those who forget the past are destined to repeat it. So we don't want to repeat what happens here in terms of churches that we're not honoring to the Lord. Okay? You got the background? Everybody good? Smile and wave at me. You're good? All right. Chapter 2 of Revelation. We're going to recognize this first church, the church in Ephesus. We know the church in Ephesus because we have a letter that Paul wrote to them. And the book of Ephesians is a deep theological book. If you look at it, read it, study it, it develops a lot of themes that we've touched on this morning. It develops the theme of redemption. It talks about being formerly dead to sin, but now alive in Christ. It talks about the work of reconciliation, so our relationship with Christ, uh, with the Lord, is restored. And then at the end, chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians are very practical chapters where Paul lays out what the Christian law looks like, and how we can be pleasing to the Lord, especially in the middle of spiritual warfare. Now, I give you that little rough background of Ephesians and outline because it's very important that we understand that when Paul writes to the uh, church in Ephesus in about 62 AD, that he's talking about redemption, he's talking about reconciliation, he's talking about putting off the old and putting on the new, he's talking about how to live uh, for Christ in the middle of opposition and, and the culture, and to stand for the Lord. Remember that, put that in the back of your head, because when he 
when the, when the church in Ephesus is talked to by the Spirit, 30 years later, we can see that they haven't followed that. So let's start. Chapter 2, just going to read seven verses this morning. Revelation 2, 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, that represents the church, and this is obviously speaking of Jesus, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and you've endured for my name's sake and you've not grown weary. But, verse 4, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now for each church, you can make a chart, you can find charts on the internet. For each church, the Spirit affirms what they're doing well and confronts what they aren't doing well. There are only two churches that only get positive words. And there's only one church that only gets negative words. And each church has a specific characteristic that describes it. That's what we're going to do each week. We're going to identify the characteristic of that church, and then we're going to analyze and compare it to our lives and our church to see if it describes us. So based on what the Holy Spirit says to the church in Ephesus, we can describe it as the passionless church. The passionless church. Now, there are some positives, and we see these in verse 3, that the Holy Spirit says to them. He says, you've persevered. You haven't grown weary in doing the work of ministry. You've protected yourselves against the influence of evil people, and you've kind of tested out somebody who says, well, I'm an apostle of Jesus, when they're really not. So you've been wise and kind of discerning, and you haven't allowed yourselves to, to kind of get corrupted spiritually. Now, this was important because Ephesus was a very cosmopolitan city, and it was a very major city. Really, it was considered the capital of Asia Minor, which is this western part of Turkey. So you have all these significant cities, Ephesus, Colossae, Philippi, Laodicea, uh, Smyrna, Pergamon. You've got all these, all these kind of towns that are all spread out through western part of Asia Minor. And Ephesus was really the most important. It was a port city at the time. Now the silt has made it inland, but it was a port city. And it was in a beautiful valley that was very fertile. There was a lot of agriculture that was going on. Kind of had everything going for it. It also was an important social and religious center. Because about a mile outside of town, they had built the largest temple in the world. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. And it was the temple to the goddess Artemis. Now, Artemis was the goddess of fertility. So you've got a harbor city. You've got a place that's very fertile and very agriculturally strong. And, and the goddess Artemis was the one 
that they worshipped. There was a lot of economic trade that came out of that temple because people came from all around the world to see the Temple of Artemis and to visit Ephesus. This was like going to New York and seeing the Statue of Liberty. It was, it was a destination place, Ephesus. So people came to this, and there was economic activity, and there was also this spiritual activity. So this was the goddess that was worshipped. It was a gigantic temple. People uh, pledged allegiance to her. So now you've got the church, the young church, Christian church, burgeoning in Ephesus, and they're facing the, the challenge of living as believers in the midst of that secular culture, which is why Paul writes what he does to them. So he's got to make it very clear, look, you're in a tough town, you're in a tough culture, there's a lot of wealth, there's a lot of uh, idol worship to this goddess, and you have to understand how important it is to deny that and to walk closely and carefully as the new creation in Christ that you are and to stand for the Lord. Because of that attack, because of the culture that they were in, the threat that the Ephesians faced was to be soft on truth. Paul teaches them theology, chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians, because they were in a climate like we are kind of now, where truth is despised, truth is subjective. If you stand for the Word of God, nobody even talks about standing for the Word of God now. Now it's just a definition of, is there a truth at all? So that's the kind of world they live in. So he says, don't, don't back down on truth. Get stronger in the truth. And be careful that you're living out and defending that faith every single day. Because if you don't, you're going to get worn down. Again, this is indicative of our culture. Truth is subjective. Truth now, if we can even use the word, is really dictated by feelings and desires and bias and, and personal agendas instead of resting solely on the Word of God. We'll develop that more when we study Pergamon in a couple weeks. So Paul writes to the Ephesians, and he says to them, here's a warning to you, Ephesian believers who are living in a very tough place. Here's a warning to you that you need to stand firm for the truth and walk fervently for the Lord. Now 30 years later, the Holy Spirit comes back and addresses the church again. And we can see from this text, verses 1 to 7, that they did not respond to Paul's letter, which was the Spirit's letter, with lasting conviction. So while God commends them for some things that they were doing, I want you to notice the characteristics of them in verse 3. They're all kind of surface works. The Ephesians were doing the tasks of ministry. They were active. They were involved. They had some good motives, but there's really no mention of their heart for the Lord other than kind of a big negative. I thought about this week because it is very easy, and I've been saved a long time, and some of you have been saved a long time, you've been in church. It is easy, isn't it, to kind of go through the motions of being a Christian. You come to church, you attend to study, you give, you serve, you try to live kind of a clean life but, but it becomes almost obligatory, kind of something you do, something you are, rather than being driven by a deep love for the Lord. So we come to communion and we hear the words, and I think the Lord gave us those words this morning, and we're kind of like, wow, 
Look at what God's done. He's forgiven half a million of my sins, maybe more. How could I not love the Lord more? And we get kind of stoked up and stirred up. And then by Tuesday, we're back to the routine. Well, next Sunday, I'll go and hopefully I'll get stirred up again. And we'll sing and we'll raise our hands. We'll praise God and it'll be wonderful. What a great service. But are we going to feel the same passion for the Lord at 2 o'clock today that we did at 10 o'clock this morning? That's what the devil's constantly trying to drive against us to reduce that passion. And he wants us to get into that mode of kind of going through the motions. And it seems like everything's good. It's not like we're being bad or anything. It's just that our passion and our love for the Lord gets kind of dull and flat and impassive. Remember our study a couple weeks ago on being average? This is, this is average without any emotion. This is average without any hunger for the Lord. We get more excited about the fact that it was 65 degrees yesterday. Or we get more excited about the latest movie that came out. Maybe we get even more excited about a bologna sandwich than we do about our relationship with the Lord. I'm being serious. Oh, six, I was in the greatest mood yesterday. Like 65. Why don't I live in California? Because it's 65 every day. Except they're crazy out there. But right, you, you woke up, am I right? You know what I'm talking about? Affirm this with me. You wake up in the sunshine and you're like, what is that? That's cool. That's warm. And you walk outside, you're like, I don't know. I was in shorts last night. Went to the grocery store in shorts, 6 o'clock. I'm like, it's February 18th. I'm in shorts. Like it's June or something. I was ready to play softball. We get excited. Oh, I was in a great mood all day. Was I in a great mood about the weather or was I in a great mood about the Lord? What happened in Ephesus, look at it, because verse 4 is very pointed. The Spirit cuts to the chase. He says, you have left your first love. Now, the key word there, I want to I highlight it before we develop what it means. He doesn't say you've lost your first love. He says you have what? Tell me, left your first love. In other words, it's not just dullness and apathy. Yeah, that's in play. He says this is a conscious decision, listen now, to neglect and abandon the relationship you have with the Lord. In other words, it signals unfaithfulness. There is, if I can use the term, kind of a spiritual adultery of the heart where negligence and inattention to the one you love has now turned into abandonment and kind of spiritual infidelity. In other words, you choose to love other people and other things more than you love the Lord. And that's far more serious because it's intentional. But it starts with a dimming of love and passion. Some of you, some of us, I'll say, unfortunately have experienced the pain of infidelity with our parents or with our family. Some of you have actually experienced it with a former spouse, where love kind of gets dull, someone becomes more selfish, they don't value and guard and nurture the relationship, and love kind of, we put it nicely, kind of fades away. The feelings we had in courtship 
the feeling we had in early marriage where we couldn't stop thinking about the person and couldn't stop doing for them and sacrificing and buying them flowers and ministering to them and loving them and taking them on a trip. That, that all just kind of disappears. You know, the same thing happens based on Revelation 2.4. The same thing can happen spiritually. The excitement and zeal we felt when we received Christ, I'll never forget it, Charlotte, North Carolina, 4th Street, in an old brick church in 1974, the zeal and passion I felt as I walked down that aisle toward my father with tears streaming down my face, knowing that God was redeeming me. That passion we feel as we mature and Scripture makes sense and we pray and God answers or we come into a service and we're just so full of praise. We're not thinking about anything. We're not care about the weather. Be 50 below. We don't care because we're in the presence of the Lord and we're praising Him. Lamb of God in my place. I mean, we just start to, we start to completely disappear into the presence of the Lord. And, and when you lead somebody to Christ, when you disciple somebody, when you pray with them, when you put their arms in them and they feel comfort, when you feel that, that, that joy, that passion, is it still there? Because the enemy's working very hard to, to strip it from us. The initial enthusiasm when you got saved, well, that wears off, and you kind of wonder if it's real, and then he gets you real busy to try to distract you and try to take you away from that feeling and to keep you from the Word and to keep you from church. I'm already dreading the weather getting warm because people now go away on the weekends, and they do stuff, and, and we don't see it. Listen, that's not a criticism. That's just, listen, we need to be here. In the Word, in church, studying, praising. Or maybe you're young in the faith and you felt kind of inadequate. Well, I don't know the verses that everybody does. And I can't pray like everybody does. And I don't know how to study the Bible. I don't really get it. And you start to get a little discouraged. And you wonder if I'll ever get there. And, of course, the people and the vices of the old self come calling. And the devil tries to get us to rationalize that our heart is changed, but our habits don't have to. And then there's just basic spiritual warfare, trying to undermine our faith and allow a little more unfaithfulness in our heart every single day until we don't feel a lot for the Lord because our hearts become dulled and divided and we're drawn somewhere else. That's Revelation 2.4. That's you've left your first love. And unfortunately, that's happened in a very dramatic way in the Christian church over the last 40 years, especially here in the States. The de-emphasis on the Word of God, the reduction of discipleship and prayer. The church, I believe, has really lost a lot of its passion for the Lord. The focus on Jesus, the reliance on the Holy Spirit has been substituted for a focus on self, and our needs, and what we want, and what makes us comfortable. And the Holy Spirit has been replaced by personal cleverness and business strategies. And at the foundation of all of that is the theory, and the Lord really impressed this upon my heart, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday, is that the church over the last 40 years has tried to program passion. Tried to program passion. So if we have 
the Starbucks and we keep the services really tight and short because people are busy and we make sure the message is safe and happy and we get a lot of media because people have a short attention span and, and we've got a killer band. I don't know how many churches I've seen that describe their band as a killer band. Nobody gets the, the irony of that. And if we will make the environment right, paint the ceilings black, and put on smoke and mirrors and, 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 and lights, and, and the uh, and singers will be just so, and we'll emote, we'll sing just the right songs, we'll raise the music just the right place, where we get you an emotional high, and then we'll hit you with this to get you going for it for the rest of the week. That somehow, that will create a lasting passion. And if we copy the entertainment industry, we may be able to connect with people to God on easy terms so maybe they'll follow him. But here's my question. If you strip all of that away, is Jesus enough? If you and I are like John and we're sitting on an island by ourselves and we don't have a Bible we don't have the other disciples. They've all been killed. Let alone coffee and comfortable chairs and awesome music and tech and other believers. If we didn't have all that, if we're like John sitting on an island by himself, would we still love Jesus the same? Now, someone might say, well, Paul, you sound like an old fogey. We do have those things, so why not use them? But that's missing the point. That's missing the point. Have those things, and I'm not saying we shouldn't use them. I'm not saying we will use some of them at some point. I'd love to have a little coffee bar out here in the lobby. We're going to get screens in here. We're going to have projection. We're going to do some of those things because they're not inherently evil. But my question is, have they given us a greater and deeper love for the Lord, or are they just a mask for the deficiency of love and faithfulness? There is zero evidence. I read all kinds of articles about the church. There is zero evidence that all the bells and whistles have made us more effective at evangelism and discipleship and prayer. There is zero evidence that our nation is under greater spiritual conviction. Think about how ironic this next sentence is that our nation's under greater spiritual conviction and beginning to repent and call on the Lord because we've conformed to their standards, I would argue very strongly that it's just the opposite. It's hard for us to argue that Christianity in America is fervent and zealous for Christ when the biggest church in America teaches heresy. It's hard for us to, to imagine that we love the Lord more when some of our most prominent Christian speakers are promoting themselves more than they're promoting Christ. Now, the critic might say, well, you're just jealous. Maybe I am. They might dismiss that and say, well, you, there are a lot of methods to reach people for Christ. There absolutely are. But are we reaching people for Christ? And are we discipling them? Because that is the only responsibility that Christ gave us in the Great Commission. Go evangelize and go make disciples. That's it. 
So the church in America and the church around the world has to measure itself against that standard. Are you evangelizing and are you discipling? Because if you neglect those, look at Revelation 2 for one more time. The only result will be passionless people who know about the Lord but don't love the Lord and live for the Lord. And I am fearful that Revelation 2.4 describes the American church today. Passionless. Passionless. So let's conclude. What does the Spirit say to Ephesus? What does he say to us? This is going to be so simple, so basic that I'm almost struggling with the fact that I don't have more. But this is what the Spirit says. Look at it and let's draw some application and pray. Look at verse 5. Therefore, in other words, because you've left your first love, therefore, here's how you solve that. Remember from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Two things. We're called to do what we did at the table this morning. We're called to remember what we have been delivered from. We had rejected God. We had fallen away from God because of sin. As I think he made it clear to us this morning, there was absolutely no hope of redemption. But by his grace, he rescued us and redeemed us and secured us as his own. So always remember what you have been delivered from. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, if you're a disciple of Christ, Never let a day, never let an hour pass where you don't remind yourself that Jesus freed you from bondage. Jesus freed you from sin's control. Jesus cleansed you. He took away the eternal punishment of sin, and he adopted you as his own, and he has given you and me abundant eternal life. Now we are supposed to live in it. And once we remember that, when we remember the sacrifice of Christ, now that causes us to look inward and say to the Lord, search me and know me and see if there's any wicked way in me because I can't live for the Lord if I'm full of sin. So that's step two. Remember, second, repent. If you've fallen back into the old lifestyle, if you're unfaithful to your new life and to the Lord, and that will be evident because you will be dull. You won't have love and passion for the Lord. It'll be going through the motions. It'll be mechanical. If that's where you are, and I pray it isn't, but maybe it is. If that's where you are, then you need to turn back to the Lord. That's the meaning of the word repent. And I want to tell you this morning, there is absolutely no substitute for this. There's no way you can finesse it. There's no way you can nuance it and expect to be walking in maturity in your faith. The only way to do it is to repent. It's impossible without that. Like I counsel anybody who's been unfaithful to their spouse or who has been flirting with it by having an emotional affair, I say to that person, I'm consistent, you have to cut off any association with that relationship right now. Not another text, not another conversation, not another date, not another anything. Cut off the source of sin and unfaithfulness right now. 
that applies to alcohol, drugs, pornology, uh, pornography, anything else. It, it, you cannot maintain some level of participation in it if you want to overcome its influence. You have to cut it off completely. So, if you've left your first love, Revelation 2.5, turn around and go back to him. And let me close with a positive. One thing we're absolutely sure about with God is that he is so gracious. He is slow to anger and rich in love. And just like the father of the prodigal, he is watching and waiting, ready to greet you, ready to forgive you, and ready to restore you. And when we do that, our love for the Lord and our zeal for holiness will increase exponentially. And there will be no way that someone will be able to look at Paul Rhodes or someone will be able to look at Harbor Rock Tabernacle and say they are passionless. They're dull. They're dry. There's no joy. There's no contentment. There's no fire. There's no fervor because there's just dullness. If we love the Lord and we do what he has called us to do, he will fill us with fire. He will fill us with joy. We will be passionate people who love him and praise him and tell others about him. And I don't know about you, but that's where I want to be. That's where I want this church to be. Because God will use us in magnificent ways if we do that.